And again, it's just an absolutely chaotic scene. People are screaming and um, and snow's flying everywhere. And, you know, there's dozens and dozens of police officers. And I'm recording as this is happening. And as this is happening, an officer, the, the same spokesperson that was addressing them, comes towards me and blocks my camera and says, you have to leave. And I said, no, I'm media. And she says, no, you have to leave. And she's starting to physically push me. So next thing I know, I am in handcuffs cuffs and told I'm under arrest for obstruction. Way Ninda Louise Pam Palmeter, and I am the host of this show, The Warrior Life. Lawyer, professor, author, and activist, Eel River Bar First Nation. My motto is education for action on indigenous rights, social justice, and protecting the planet. And on this podcast, you're going to get an education of a different kind. It's the one that comes directly from Indigenous voices, one that's enriched by Indigenous cultures, insights, experiences, and all kinds of people, activists, land defenders, water protectors, journalists, artists, you name it, all of them are right here on the Warrior Life podcast. And today's podcast is going to educate listeners about the dangers faced by Indigenous journalists who are on the front lines of trying to tell our story. So stay tuned. You don't want to miss this. Welcome back. My name is Pam Palmeter and I am the host of the Warrior Life podcast. And it is my immense honor and pleasure to welcome to the show, Brandi Morin. Brandi Morin is literally a hero. She's a shiro. She is just literally on fire. And I don't even know where to begin to introduce her. We had her on the show a year ago for those Warrior Life podcast fans. And it was hard enough to introduce her. But a year later, and she's on fire. And I mean that quite literally. She is doing so much and winning so many awards, I can hardly keep up. And you'll see her, hear her, or read about her on NBC, CNN, Vice, Elle, National Geographic, The New York Times, Rolling Stone Magazine. I mean, ah, if only I could get there. But she's on fire. She also has, get this, a best-selling book that was almost instantaneously, it was like available for an hour and it was already a best-selling book, Our Voice on Fire. And I'm just so excited to have you here. I'm not happy about the conditions of the reasons why we're having you here, but welcome to the Warrior Life Podcast brand. Tanse, hello. Thank you so much, Pam, for having me back. I'm just, I'm, I'm really excited and I know, well, I know you're incredibly busy. I can't imagine how you keep up, let alone with things that are happening. But before we get into things, because there's a lot of things happening, uh, let's give Brandy a chance to introduce herself and her nation for those of you who might not know her. Go ahead, Brandy. Tanze, hello everybody. Uh, I'm coming to you from Treaty 6 Territories, the homelands of my ancestors. I am a mixed Cree Iroquois French woman and I belong to the Michelle First Nation. I live just west of Edmonton, Alberta. 
Oh, that's awesome. And I think a show for another time for you and I, Brandy, is all of the injustices that have been done to the Michelle First Nation mm. and all the members of the Michelle First Nation. But I would just get on a rant and that would take up the whole show. So I want the whole world to know what is happening to you right now. And, I, and I'm sorry this is happening to you. And in fact, it shouldn't be happening in Canada. I literally think that the injustice that's being done to you by the police is truly an injustice to all Canadians. And it's an egregious attack on free media. Because if you're gonna to claim to be a country that's about democracy, one of the central tenets of democracy is free and open media. But before we get into the details of what actually has happened to you and ways in which we can help you, address this injustice that's been done to you personally, I think we need to establish a baseline. Because you know how police forces in Canada and governments and sometimes the media have a way of criminalizing and vilifying Indigenous peoples out there on the front lines doing good work. And I know you're the kind of person where you don't like to brag about yourself. You would never even mention your awards on here. But I want listeners to know just how bad it is in Canada if this can happen to someone who is an amazing mother and journalist and someone who is dedicated to her people and just wants to tell the stories on the front lines so that we know what's happening and Canadians can take help. And so I want to go through just some of them. Obviously, we wouldn't be able to do all of them. But Brandy, uh, one of the things that I noticed was obviously your book. It's called our Voice of Fire, a memoir of a warrior rising. And I wasn't kidding when I said it was an instantaneous bestseller. And that usually doesn't happen. Can you tell us a little bit about this book? Sure. So it came out in August 2022. And it's basically a memoir chronicling um, my life growing up in and out of the foster care system and, um, you know, being a survivor at a young age of the missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls crisis and, you know, just overcoming a lot of adversity, you know, single motherhood and, uh, you know, trauma and then, you know, really finding my purpose and my path in life through the medium of journalism and, um, you know, showcasing, um, you know, my rise, so to speak, in that arena in, um, you know, uh, showcasing our people's uh, stories and experiences. So it's a very intimate, honest, raw portrait into the, my life, which is, you know, parallel to a lot of Indigenous uh, women's experiences in this country. And I think that's a story, and I don't have to tell you, that wasn't told for years. You know, everybody was focused on all of the other issues, but the voices and experiences of Indigenous women and girls with violence, with being neglected, with having their human rights violated, with our lived experiences, just wasn't out there. So one of the things that really... I guess makes me really excited about your book and the fact that it was an instantaneous bestseller because even if every single native person in Canada bought your book that couldn't make it a bestseller it is an indication to me that Canadians are starting to take notice and they really care and they want to know what's happening and 
your life story just is the culmination of all of these things we see in the media, but it's made personal. And yeah. was that your intention really so that, that it would be Canadians reading this too? Yes, because I, you know, working as a journalist and specifically telling Indigenous stories, I understand a lot of the time how our people are dehumanized or looked at as statistics or, you know, with discrimination. And so I really wanted to put a personal, um, you know, look into that, you know, for people that, you know, know me, I have a platform and to just, you know, try to, you know, make people connect on a human level, you know, because honestly, my story or others' stories, when you think of them, they could be anybody's relative, anybody's sister, daughter, mother, auntie. And I really honestly believe that when human beings connect together via the way of truth, via the way of stories, then a lot of breakthroughs can be made in overcoming a lot of barriers, right, that, that we're facing. Yeah. And I think you raised a really important point. I don't know a single Indigenous person that doesn't have a family member, a friend or community members that has not been impacted mm -hmm. by all of the issues that you talk about in our voice of fire, especially violence against women. And just for all of those police forces out there who say, oh, it's only Native men doing this. In <laughs> fact, the statistics show otherwise that it's uh, the vast majority are Canadians doing this, and that's not to vilify Canadians, but we really need to set the record straight. Wherever the violence is coming from, wherever the human rights breaches are coming from, governments looking at you too, uh, we need to address this urgent issue. And I think your your book really, really hits home to people, really hits them in their heart. And I think it's done so much to actually kind of reignite this issue because we had the National Inquiry and the murder of missing Indigenous women and girls, but just kind of fell off the radar. And so your book, the bestseller, has just well, brought it up there again. So I mean, it's still a crisis. It's a crisis. You know, it's still ongoing and nothing is being done about it. We have this report. We have that it was named a genocide, but it's happening across Turtle Island. You know, we know, we, we, we see what's going on. We see the targeting of our women, you know, when it comes to Winnipeg and what's going on there, you know, with the Indigenous women that were targeted by the serial killer. And, you know, kind of every few days we're hearing of one of our women or girls going missing or being found dead. And I just think that people don't realize how bad of a situation it is and have lot maybe have grown up pathetic to it. So we do need to keep um, a focus on it because people are literally dying. Yeah, exactly. And I know that, I mean, it, it's your own personal story. Imagine going through all of the trauma that you've gone through and to be where you are today, fighting through any fears and traumas and all of the, you know, think there's like got to be a million triggers out there and you're just I'm doing this. I'm going ahead. I'm, I'm forging ahead. I'm going to tell the stories of my people. And it's, it's literally winning you awards. I mean, you won the Edward R. Murrow, the Edward R. Murrow award for feature reporting in 2022. Can you tell us like what this award is about? Cause this is a very yeah. high profile award and what you want it for. Yes. Yeah, so next to a Pulitzer Prize, 
The Edward R. Morrow Award is the highest uh, achievement in the world of journalism uh, internationally. So uh, I won it uh, in competition against real heavyweight, you know, media outlets. And uh, this series I had done with Al Jazeera English on missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls around the Highway of Tears and industry and what's going on there. So I was actually really stunned when I learned that this one, um, I had fought for this story to be told. I had been turned away by many outlets. It finally got done. And then, you know, I, I got to go to New York City and and pick it up with, uh, you know, at a big fancy, you know, ceremony. But yes, I was proud of it. And I'm proud of it because it's um, for all of us, right? It's for, um, you know, all of the families who I have worked with or the mothers who have stood at the graves of their daughters with, and um, you know, all of the people that have been praying for this issue to be taken seriously. So I was very, very proud because when, when that comes into the limelight, right, then it helps to elevate these stories and issues and, and, you know, bring about other opportunities to tell them. Well, and that's the thing, you know, you put yourself out there. This isn't easy stuff. It's not like we are covering stories about, you know, some famous artwork and it was celebrated and everyone got to sit around and enjoy it. it these are heavy life and death, intergenerational trauma kind of issues that you're covering. So for you to win an award for this, also, like just like your book brings up the profile and makes people say, hey, wait, what's going on here? Because you're not just one of those, you know, 250 word kind of journalists. You're like, here's the details. Here's the important context that's so mm. often missing. And that kind of award, like, wow, Brandy. I mean, I think if you were 80 years old and you'd been doing this for, I don't know, 60 years, I'd be like, yeah, okay, good accomplishment. But wow, you're like 20 years old and, and getting all of these awards. I'm like, what is going on here? Oh, but good on you. Good on you. And so Canadians should really, really, really see this accomplishment. It's huge. Thank you. And so the other one I want to uh, talk about, because you, you are winning awards in all different categories for all different things and all different stories. And I think that's important to understand too, like your diversity, the breadth of the things that you cover really shows your talent and obviously your extensive knowledge. So one of the things that you won an award for was the, it used to be called the Native American Journalism Association, NAHA, uh, but now it's the Indigenous Journalism Association. Uh, but you won the award in 2022 for Print online best feature story. What was that story? Yeah, so there was a couple of different awards, uh, which was incredible to be honored by my own, you know, colleagues, uh, so to speak, within the Indigenous journalism community. This that particular story. So there was two of them. So one was for best co um, column, and one was the feature story. Now that was regarding um, I. Um, profiled a couple of residential school survivors for Al Jazeera English. And um, it was really, you know, dark. They had 
you know, witness their friends and relatives die next to them. Um, you know, one had been forced to bury a classmate, you know, by the priest. And, you know, it, it really um, was a very difficult story to tell. And I profiled it and, and, and it went to an international audience. And I think it was called the bones of our children or something along those lines. It was, um, you know, a year and a half ago or so already, but uh, again, one of those really tough, um, devastating type stories, but also one that needs to be shared with the world because there's so many like people that are in denial as to these different atrocities that our people have experienced that still impact them today. And, and, Something else I want people to know, too, is, you know, the, the stories of our people that weren't famous or that weren't a politician simply weren't told in the old days. And if they ever if they ever did manage to make their way into a community, the ways in which they engaged with our people was atrocious. And so here you are talking about some of the most traumatic and painful memories for our elders with whom we just have to have so much respect for everything they went through and lived through so that we could uh, carry on the mission. Uh, what's it like? How is it different interviewing and talking to elders or people who've suffered from murder to missing relatives. I mean, it's, it's so sensitive. I mean, yeah. Like uh, you just have to be genuine. People are going to sense if you go into a situation like this um, with, you know, um, maybe an ulterior motive or, you know, not, um, not coming in, authentically they you know and 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 empathetically and i i really believe that also it helps that we're native people like you know all of our cultures and our languages and things like that are just so diverse right but there is a lot of nuance across the board and i think that um because of the repertoire of work that i have built up over the years that people are familiar with my work and my name and um you know, in, in, and, and tend to trust, to trust me and trust that. Right. So I take these stories and these people very, very seriously. And, uh, you know, they're not just one-offs for me. They're not just, you know, I, I, uh, carry them with me and, um, you know, so it's, you know, usually a case by case basis, but usually it's really about just building and creating a relationship with people. And for you personally, I mean, I don't want to ask you anything that is too personal or upsetting, but their stories must also have an impact on you because you, you've suffered similar pain and trauma. Um, how do you take care of yourself when covering all of these horrible stories that aren't just from the past? These things are still happening today. Yeah, I mean, it's something that I'm like still figuring out how to do. And there are times when it does catch up to me. I try to do my best to stay healthy, you know, spiritually and mentally and physically, right? Um, but 
I'm just like anybody else and I'm not always perfect at, you know, keeping up on certain things. Uh, I, I use, I incorporate a lot of prayer and in everything that I do, but there are times when it gets completely overwhelming and I, uh, I have to, you know, take a little breath and take a break. And then, and then I know when I need to come back because I honestly feel like, this is a life purpose that this is, you know, literally a calling for me to do. And I, I crave to do it. I want to be connecting with people. I want to be storytelling and truth telling. Right. Um, so, I mean, but I have to say that what happened recently with my arrest, I've never questioned more in my career about this kind of work and what's at stake to do it. There should be some kind of award for warrior journalism because, I mean, when you think about the topics that you're covering, your own experiences, and then what's at risk, you know, and we're going to talk a little bit about what literally is at risk. Your own personal freedom could be at risk. But, I mean, you've been honored not just by one or two you've got the pen canada ken philco prize in 2023 what, what was that about now that uh was for helping to advance freedom of expression in canada so uh this prize was established in 2015 and um it was named in the memory of a distinguished winnipeg lawyer and former chair of the manitoba human rights commission um you know previous winners were one of my colleagues amber bracken she's an incredible photojournalist she was arrested and detained while covering the Wet'suwet'en uh, conflict in northern northern british columbia uh, and others. And so, um, you know, they awarded it to me because they, um, you know, felt that I was committed to reporting on these front lines. They quote uh, with courage and transparency, despite risks to my own safety, because even before this arrest, I've been threatened multiple, multiple times with arrests and, you know, um, have had uh, police and RCMP um, falsely accuse me or try to prevent me, you know, for, for, from doing this work. So it, it's so hard to imagine that you're constantly being threatened with arrest for doing the work that is not only legal, but apparently the foundation of Canada and being recognized. I mean, even Amnesty International Canada, uh, an organization that I respect dearly and who has supported me and so many other activists in the work that we're doing, uh, they also honored you with the media award in 2022-2023. Was it for something specific or was it all, like the totality of your work? No, it was actually for a feature that I did on the Wet'suwet'en and it was a feature called Wazinkwa and the fight to save her, I believe. It was an extensive feature that I did with Ricochet Media and Amber Brocken um, was the photojournalist on that. And it was uh, just a really in-depth look on um, how the Wet'suwet'en are, you know, have been fighting to protect their sacred um, headwaters and riverways and how it's one of the last um, in the world. And I was awarded the Amnesty uh, International Award for that. So really proud that this work, you know, is, is being acknowledged because again, 
a lot of times um, these land defenders in these situations are vilified and they are depicted as terrorists or criminals in their own territories, right? And so um, I was, you know, honored to be able to tell this story from the perspectives of elders and leaders and matriarchs and land defenders, um, it, you know, in, in that feature. Again, you're a storyteller making sure that the stories of others are being put out there so that Canadians can say, whoa, what is going on here? And obviously it's being noticed. And of course, your book and your writings, you got the Alberta Literacy Mem Memoir Award in 2023 and the Wilfred Eggleston Award for nonfiction in 2023. I'm assuming that those are both attached to your book. Your best yes. instant best-selling book. <laughs> yes, yes, that's pretty, pretty cool. <laughs> well, I mean, that's so listeners, the reason why I went through this, and, and there are many other things that she's done, don't get me wrong. This is kind of the short list of awards. I want you to understand what Brandy is doing. You don't see Brandy going out there and committing vandalism or assaulting people or stealing things or hurting other people. She's in fact doing the opposite, the opposite. She's literally putting her freedom uh, and her personal security and safety on the front lines to tell the stories of others who are doing the exact same thing. Their personal freedom and safety is on the line when they defend their waters, defend their lands, or try to exist. Like say, in a homeless camp, for example. Now, we all know from the media recently that you have been arrested, but can you take us a step back and tell us what were you covering? What were you, you know, you're out there, you were doing journalism. What was the situation on the ground? Yeah, so I had been covering uh, an Indigenous homeless encampment in Edmonton. Now, I just want to note that um, Edmonton police had been clearing uh, tent encampments around the city that had been identified as high risk uh, by the city throughout December and January. And so I heard about this particular Indigenous camp and I went to go cover it. Also want to note that Edmonton is home to the second largest population of urban Indigenous people in the country next to Winnipeg. So about 8% of the population of Edmonton identifies as Indigenous, but over 60% of the people experiencing homelessness in the city are Indigenous. So our people are very overrepresented in that situation, like a lot of other adverse situations. So I had been there and uh, went there on a, on a Monday, 1st, January 9th, and uh, the police had come through that day. There was other journalists there, including Amber Bracken, my colleague, she and, and advocates and volunteers, along with the people that were living in this encampment. There was around six to eight individuals that were living here, and they, they had been living there for approximately six months on a lot, a city-owned lot in Edmonton. So that day, the police came and were walking through the camp and checking out you know, structures there and um, managed to negotiate with the camp leader. His name is Roy Cardinal, but he goes by Big Man, his nickname. And the police agreed to just take down structures that were unoccupied, but to leave the tents that were occupied alone. And so 
that seemed to go over pretty well. I mean, there were some tense moments, but it seemed to go over pretty well that day. And I stayed and documented and then I left. Now, when I got home that day, I saw a video that was being circulated online of a young Blackfoot Dene man who goes by two guns. Now he had been there as a supporter. He's a volunteer with the Bear Claw Patrol, which is a spinoff of the Bear Clan Patrol, which, uh, you know, is an indigenous led organization to, you know, um, you know, patrol the streets and help to make sure that they're safe and, um, you know, take care of the people out there. Now he had, um, an incident with the police there where, you know, his wife was pushed down by an officer and, and he went to confront the officer and was um, tackled down uh, with an officer on his neck and multiple, multiple police on top of him and a big, you know, scene that was depicted in this video with people screaming and crying and uh, just, um, a really traumatic experience for this young man. And so the next day I went back because I wanted to do more in-depth interviews. I didn't have the opportunity to do that the day before with the people living there and also to see if Two Guns was going to come around to get his story as to what had happened. So it was a uh, late morning and I was in Roy Cardinal, big man's teepee, uh, tent that he was living in and there was people coming and going and um, it was you know just an interesting dynamic there because the police and the province had been really working um, through various mediums such as social media or uh, press conferences to depict these encampments as um, you know dangerous and gang-ridden and um, you know, I, that may be the case in certain instances, but I did not witness that. I witnessed a community here um, at this uh, encampment. And so in Roy Cardinals, you know, they, they would be smudging or they would be sharing stories or, you know, singing. Um, so I was in there trying to do some interviews. And somebody came inside the tent and said, the police are here. So I went outside and I saw that the police were finishing putting up yellow crime scene tape around the premises of uh, the camp, about a one acre lot or so. And so within about less than 10 minutes, the police had gathered on a small mound overlooking the camp. Again, there was volunteers and advocates there uh, this day as well, but there was no journalists on site when I had first been there, but when I came out of the teepee, when the police came, there was journalists that were gathering behind a yellow line, which is known as a exclusion zone or a media exclusion zone that the police have, you know, created in certain instances when they are, um, you know, conducting raids or actions upon land defenders or indigenous peoples. And it was very far back and I seen them, they were all setting up with their cameras. So I'm thinking, well, maybe the police or somebody had tipped them off that the police were gonna come in and do this raid to take down this encampment. So I was documenting what was going on. And in less than 10 minutes, um, again, the police were gathered on this mound and they asked to talk to Roy, the leader. So Roy came out with another young man who was living in the encampment, as well as two guns. And then, uh, you know, a bunch of their supporters and other people that were living in the camp. And they formed a line 
uh, opposite the police. And um, Roy was upset. Now he expressed his concern and anger about what had happened the day before in regards to the violence against two guns. And a representative that, you know, the spokesperson for the police um, basically said, okay, we're, you know what we're here to do. We're here to take down the encampment. Now you can leave peacefully or you can be forcibly removed and uh, your encampment will be take, taken down anyway. So basically Rory and the others, you know, said like they, they're, they're not leaving. And he told his, uh, you know, comrades, I guess, uh, to, you know, put their eagle feathers up. He said, eagle feathers up boys. And, and they held them up and within, you know, probably 20 seconds or so the police moved forward to take them down. And again, it's just an absolutely chaotic scene. People are screaming and, um, and snow's flying everywhere. And, you know, there's dozens and dozens of police officers and I'm recording as this is happening. And, as this is happening, an officer, the, the same spokesperson that was addressing them, comes towards me and blocks my camera and says, you have to leave. And I said, no, I'm media. And she says, no, you have to leave. And she's starting to physically push me. She's physically pushing me back. And I said, well, you know, no, like I, I have a right to be here. I am not impeding you in any way. And she said, no, you have to leave. And then she said, get behind that yellow line. And she was pushing me and trying to push me way out. Now this yellow line, this exclusion zone, because I have covered many front lines involving police actions against indigenous people. I know about these exclusion zones that they create. And I know that they've been proven to be unlawful in, um, in uh, the Justin Brake case, as well as um, in BC, where they have used them for the Ferry Creek blockades and others. And besides, it was really far back, like 50 feet back, where she was trying to push me. Meanwhile, they're plummeting this group of, you know, citizens there. And I, I said, I, I'm not leaving. No. Like, I... I know what our people deal with. I know the violence and the brutality that they experience at the hands of police in this country. And I was there to stand and do my job to witness and to document, to hold them to account if need be. So next thing I know, I am in handcuffs cuffs and told I'm under arrest for obstruction. And like, it was like minus 40 out, like it's, it's freezing cold out. They cuff me and then they, they take two big guys, take me, walk me, you know, to their police van. And while they're walking me there, the other media that had set up behind this exclusion zone, they were zooming their cameras in on me. And here I am like looking like this big criminal being led away and my hair is all over the place. And I just look rough, you know, and I, and all this other, you know, action and and you know the bullying i call it bullying of, of what they were doing to these people was happening people were getting arrested and later on my dad called me and said oh i seen you on the news you know what's going on they were hauling you away and you know <laughs> and i was like so embarrassed and humiliated so they took me to their police van which is a cage and like honestly i I had to go pick up my daughter, my five-year-old daughter at kindergarten, um, 
that afternoon at like th just after three o'clock. And all I kept thinking about if I'm arrested, nobody's going to know where I am and nobody's going to be there for a leisure to pick her up from school. And so I was yelling to a young girl that was there that was um, videoing this. And I said, please, can you call my mom? And I was yelling out my mom's number. Please, can you call her and tell her and, you know, tell her she has to pick up Alasia, my little girl. And I was so worried about that. I remember like, oh my God, I don't want my little girl to be just left all alone standing there. And so they took me and it was painful. I don't want to be a baby or whining about that, but they put my cuffs on wrong and it was freezing. It was like minus 40. So my, my hands were numb already and cold and put the cuffs on wrong. Like it was like cutting, it was painful. And I, and I did, I broke, I haven't told anybody this, but I broke down crying at the, um, at the paddy wagon. And I said, please, this is so painful. You guys have to adjust it. And they were just jerking, jerking me around. And I was like screaming. It hurt. So they put me into this cage and I had to wait in there. And then I'm hearing everything that's going outside while I'm in this cold cage. You know, and I'm hearing everything, all the screaming, all the yelling and everything that they're doing. And I'm thinking, man, like, yeah, they sure shut me up with able, you know, being able to do my job. They, so they took me and there was a 21-year-old girl, uh, a university, university student that was arrested. She was there as, as a supporter and they also arrested a uh, big man, Roy Cardinal. I have to note that there were other people filming, filming there. They weren't journalists that were inside. I think one was a filmmaker, but none of them were targeted like I was. They were pushed out after. They took me and I got, you know, processed and put in a cell and you know, I didn't really know what was going to happen. And one of the officers was telling me I could be held up for 72 hours, which was three days. And I just thought, this is insane. And they ended up holding me for five hours, which I'm told is a little excessive given that I have no criminal record and that it was an obstruction charge. So anyway, I got on the phone to my editor and told him what was going on. And and he, you know, started to get a hold of some lawyers and called my mom and stuff to make sure that my little girl was going to be okay. And then they, they they let me out and pushed me out the side door in minus 40 and I had to walk back to my vehicle. And then, you know, just kind of like stunned by everything that had happened. Not really um, having a chance to process it, right? Go home. My little girl's there. She'd heard that mommy was in jail and, you know, just talking that with her, right? I'm not going to keep things from her and just telling her I'm okay and that I'm safe. Um, she doesn't like the police, she says. <laughs> and then I didn't, I could not sleep that whole night. My, my mind was wired. You just don't. So the next day I was determined. I'm like, you know what? I'm going to go and I'm going to continue doing this story. I'm not going to let them get in my way and I'm going to follow this and I'm going to go do this work. So I went back to the city and I went back to the camp to find out where people were. And I was like trying to find big man. He was still being held. And I was interviewing the student that um, got arrested. But then out of nowhere, I can't say out of nowhere. I had a massive panic attack and I wanted to drive to the hospital because I felt like I was dying and having a heart attack and I didn't realize what was going on. And then I phoned, um, you know, one of my mentors and she said, Brandy, your body's catching up to what happened yesterday. And I said, 
Oh, okay. Yeah. And so I stopped everything and I said, I have to go home. And I went home. And for the next couple of weeks, it was hell. I had no idea that this would have affected me as much as it did. It was dark, dark, darkness of that experience of being criminalized and questioning everything about myself, about this work and, you know, the torture of the unknown. And I waited because I was told I had to go to get fingerprinted and get um, mugshot. And I had till the end of the month. And I was like, you know what? They're going to drop the charges. I, I, they're going to drop them. This isn't going to go through. And I was praying and hoping. And then I was waiting. I didn't want to be in their system. I don't want to be in their system and, and be criminalized. And so I waited. And then I thought, okay, well, i got to get her done. So I, um, yeah, I went last week and got fingerprinted and um, had my mugshot taken. And then, you know, here I am waiting. <laughs> over a week later waiting for the charges to be dropped and then not dropped. But the thing is, I have to say that a couple of things. So um, I've had incredible support from media organizations like um, Canadian Association of Journalists. My editors who I was working for at the time, Ricochet Media have been incredible in their advocacy and, and working, you know, to help me, which is really remarkable because I'm a freelancer. It's not like I'm one of their employees. So they've gone over and above and I'm thankful. There's, um, the, uh, women, um, women press freedom, which is an incredible organization. Again, they are going over and above. They've been calling the mayor's offices and the police and harassing them. And I was like, wow, like, I don't even know you could do that. And then we have Reporters Without Borders, um, the center. Oh gosh, there's so many, and I don't want anybody to get upset. But uh, there, there's just some of the top in the world, even Amnesty International, as well as the Indigenous Journalist Association. They're all standing um, beside me, and you know, calling for these charges to be dropped. However, last week I learned last, I think Wednesday that the Crown had received the um, disclosure, which is basically the evidence um, from the police that they have against me. Now, they, the police, it's, it's about them um, providing enough evidence to prosecute me for the crime of obstruction. By the way, it's a criminal charge. And whether, you know, it's in the public interest to do that. And the Crown right now is deciding that. but. This disclosure I learned from my lawyer, who's we're still waiting to get it because we do get to review it. It takes seven to 10 business days. It's 61 pages long against me. And I was thinking, what do they got on me? And, and I think like they're so determined, right, that they put that much effort in to prove their stance, their power whatever it is they want to do against me. And so when that happened, I was like, wow, well, this could go either way, right? And there's a lot at stake because there's a lot at stake for press freedom. There's a lot at stake for me personally, if I have to cr criminal record. And there's a lot at stake for the police because they want to be able to um, determine and decide how and when they are documented 
you know, by the media and they want to be able to make those rules. And also, and I've said this, I believe that it is an attempt to intimidate, to silence, to uh, discredit us and what we do. So on both sides, there's a lot at stake and I'm praying that it will not go to trial because it's it's just absurd if you think about it. But I'm praying that the Crown will see that this is not in the public interest and, you know, that they, they, they'll be withdrawn. I mean, what an incredible story. You're not committing any crimes. We know that media exclusion zones, anyone who follows like the case law and stuff like Justin Brake's case and the one in BC knows, please don't get to randomly do that. It's not like there was, um, I don't know, uh, a live shooting that's happening and they're trying to keep people right. back. You know, for, you're covering a story, you're engaged in the media and you had every right to be there. And for them to literally not just treat you like a criminal, but literally try to make you a criminal, like try to submit evidence, <laughs> apparently 60 pages. I don't know what they're going to have. What are they doing? Like, <laughs> like a 50, 60 pictures of you? <laughs> because I, know, I, right? I just can't imagine. And then to like all, all of the impact on that. And I think that's the thing that people don't understand. Like when I talked to Justin Brake about what he went through, like people have no idea just how traumatic that is to be criminalized, to not mm -hmm. know what are the police going to do? Because we know sometimes our people don't survive police encounters yep. or we're very seriously hurt, especially when you're in their vehicles or being detained or outside of the public eye, which is yeah. one of the reason why these things are so important. I mean, Beatrice Hunter from, you know, she was doing all of the protests for her scenario. She said the scariest moment for her in her entire life was tape being taken into RCMP custody. So the, just that and yeah. all of the impact it has on you. And then the risk. I mean, I'm thinking, oh, gosh, when I talked to Molly Wickham and she said, here she gets arrested. She gets skirted off to jail. She doesn't get to tell anyone. It's like, hey, oh, what about my kids? Who's yeah, exactly. going to watch my kids? Well, like, what's going to happen? Like. Those mm -hmm. are the things that the police do to us. The state does yeah. so often. And it is a media chill. This is intimidation. This is like, ah, you'll think twice again about mm -hmm. trying to cover police injustices. I just, I don't know what to say, Brandy. Cause I, <laughs> I mean, you're a warrior, but you don't intentionally go out and try to get the police to arrest you. This isn't, <laughs> this isn't normal. No, I know. And, and at the same time, they are working really hard to try to justify it because, you know, they've provided their comment and statements to various um, articles that have been done on this. And it's interesting, you know, what they say there, they say things like, oh, Brad, you know, Miss Morn was asked, you know, repeatedly to leave the area, blah, blah, blah. But if people don't understand the context of that, that it was right when they were rushing forward and then they came after me and said, leave, leave, leave. It wasn't like they like politely, like a few, you know, before said, okay, you can't be here. You have to leave, blah, blah, blah. Not to say I would have left anyway, but the way that it's framed, it makes me look that I was just like completely, you know, going out of my way um, to, yeah, I don't know. It just, I mean, they're going to defend their stance and they, 
had the choice to charge me or not. So, you know, even while I was in jail, I didn't know what was going on yet because they said, oh, we're waiting to see if, if she's going to charge you. So they had the choice whether to just release me or to charge me with obstruction. And so, you know, the officer was very determined to make an example, you know, that she felt that I had committed obstruction, um, you know, even though she had come after me. But uh, yeah. I know. I don't know. I guess I'm a lawyer, but just as a reasonable everyday person, I think obstruction you tried to step in front of the police officer and not let them arrest someone, or you tried to steal the police officer's gun, or you, you know, put their police car on fire to try to like, hello, obstruction. You were filming what they were doing. And listen, people who have nothing to hide, hide nothing. And why are they so concerned about their own actions being filmed? If they're doing what's right, they should welcome the world to say, Hey, look, we're doing this right. We're we're within our rights. We're not hurting anyone. We're allowed to move that. Like all of those things. They're very, very antsy about being recorded. And strategic with creating these exclusion zones so that they can control the narrative. I would have not been able to, you know, witness and document if I was all the way far back. I mean, even, you know, I watched footage after of the the news stations that were there and they were like zooming in and zooming in. And you just, you kind of just see the backs of police. You don't see what's going on in there and how people are getting beat up and pushed down. And, um, you know, those are human rights violations and, um, you know, and so, yeah, I, I don't believe that I did anything wrong, but I think that the general public looking in on this situation wouldn't, understand that, understand the context of mm-hmm. why I stood my ground, why I asserted my rights in that situation. Right. So. Uh. Well, Brandy, let's hope that the prosecutor looks at this and says, Ooh, you know what? We're not actually allowed to do this. There's a free and open media in this democracy. We're not allowed to set up exclusion zones. Either that or you're going to get a prosecutor who says, hey, yeah, let's use this as a test case and scare all of the other reporters and journalists from doing this. And and maybe we'll win and we'll be the only problems that can have exclusions. I was like, who knows what goes on in their mind? All I know is that I hope they have some reason and they say, Mm. no, we're we're not going to proceed with charges. They've done enough damage to you. In my opinion, they've done enough damage to journalism. Because, whoa, if they proceed with charges. Yeah. I won't say anymore, but wow. Uh, You you think you have people supporting you now? Imagine how many more will be supporting you because we all have your back, Randy. Yeah, I hope so. Thank you. So what can we do? I mean, that's the big question. When when Canadians and other Indigenous peoples from all over the world listen to this, their number one question, if I don't ask it, is, what the heck can we do to support Brandy and or the cause? So sometimes people come on and it's like, we need you to support this immediate scenario. But sometimes it's the individuals that are being persecuted. Mm-hmm. What can we do to support you? Well, thank you so much. So I, I just would say to help to raise awareness and keep this in the spotlight, share um, different articles uh, or news clips on this and you know tell people and just keep it in the spotlight so the pressure um, can hopefully be felt by 
you know, the prosecutors or the police. I, I'm hoping that that would make a difference. Public pressure is, you know, and just, uh, just voice, voice your, your support and your support for me and for, a you know, a you know, a, a free media, a free press. My gosh, it seems so basic to say now, uh, I don't know the situation. I know sometimes journalists have their legal costs covered. And if that's the case, great. But if not, uh, is there a place where we, we can be making donations? Is there like a GoFundMe or anything like that? Um, there Right now, I'm really blessed to have a, lawyers that are working pro bono, which is like wonderful. So I'm really grateful for that. I have a right now a good Cree criminal lawyer. His name's Rick Morasti. I'm really thankful for that. Um, my editors did make like a GoFundMe for me, like personally, I think a week ago. Um, that was just to help because like I I just experienced a lot of like mental and emotional um, um, difficulties through this and haven't been totally able to concentrate on doing the work that I need to do because as a freelancer, you have to hustle, hustle, hustle. And so I think they, they yeah, they created a um, – I uh, go find my just to help, you know, with some of my, you know, costs and stuff like that to help alleviate that because I, again, I, my capacity has been really, um, you know, impacted. So, yeah, no kidding. Uh, and especially if they do go ahead with charges, but we're all just going to pray yes. that that's not the case. Is that a link that I'll be able to share afterwards for anyone who's listening yeah. or watching this afterwards that says, you know what? We want to support her personally too. It's not it's not fair that we've got all these warriors on the front lines and sometimes you know they're not they're not supported in all the ways um, yeah. that they really need to be. So if we can share that link, I'll do that. I'll post it in the description box. Of course, I'm gonna post a whole bunch of links to your book and some of the awards that you've won. Um, your social media so that people can follow you, share what you're doing, comment on it, like, you know, trigger all of those social media algorithms because then Brandy's mm. words and her stories get out to a much larger audience. And the other thing about triggering the algorithm for Brandy is if you're listening to Brandy's stories or watching her on TV, that's going to trigger you to get other content from other Indigenous people doing the same thing and you might get stuff from Justin you might get stuff from Amber you might get stuff from a whole bunch of other people yes. so do what you can support indigenous content creators <clears throat> excuse me and journalists every way you can and share this podcast far and wide share the video far and wide use it in your classrooms um, do what you can to really speak out and, and call for justice for Brandy uh, thank you Brandy for making the time I know it's very, very painful. Um, the, the fact that you were able to come on here and, and talk about this. Um, I hope you're going to be okay. And you know, just on a personal basis, like you can text me anytime. And we oh, can plot and strategize how to <laughs> proceed next. <laughs> Amazing. I'm so appreciative and I'm, I feel uplifted, you know, and encouraged. So thank you. Hi, hi for your work. Thank you. And thank you to all the listeners and viewers. Till next time, keep living a warrior life. Wolalia. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting my podcast. Your donations help me keep the Warrior Life podcast open access to everyone and free from those annoying ads. 
And it's super simple. Just click on the link below to sign up for a Patreon monthly or yearly subscription, or click the links for the Buy Me A Coffee app or the Kofi app to make one-time contributions. And if you belong to an awesome community group, business, or organization that's committed to Indigenous reconciliation, consider sponsoring an episode or two, or as many as you like. Thank you for helping me lift the voices of Indigenous warriors doing phenomenal things to help make our world a better place.